Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this meeting of the historical group of the Society. Uh, we are honoured to have here tonight our president, Gordon Page, and his younger brother, Stephen Page. We're here this evening for um, Keith Hayward to talk to us about the Freddie Page memoirs. Keith, who is now the head of research at the Society, was formerly head of economic and political affairs at the Society of British Aircraft uh, Aerospace Companies, SBAC, and Professor of International Relations at Staffordshire University. He has been a consultant to the UK House of Commons Trade and Industry Committee and the US Congress Office of Technology Assessment and the UK Ministry of Defence and the UK Department of Trade and Industry. He's written extensively on defence and aerospace industry issues. He's an Associate Fellow of the Royal United Services Institute and a visiting <coughs> professor at Staffordshire and Cranfield Universities. And may I now introduce Professor Keith Hayward to give his talk. Thank you. Well, well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's, uh, it, it's, always, a, it's always a pleasure and a, and a privilege to, to give a talk at headquarters and certainly to a, a, to a bunch of people whose work I have admired for some years. Something of a, a departure for me, however, is to, if you like, look much further back than I normally do on, on aerospace and defence issues, to take us back into the days of the 1940s and 1950s when truly the UK aircraft industry built proper aeroplanes. It's also, uh, to some extent, uh, unusual for me to be talking about an individual. I'm normally a an analyst of aerospace, industrial trends, developments, and things deeply political and, and economic. But here I, I, I'm talking about a man's life, a man's career, someone who's provided, in many respects, the heart, or has contributed to building the heart of post-war UK military aerospace. I know there, there are lots of other contestants in, in Kingston and elsewhere, but I think the, the work that, that Freddie Page did and his team he built or helped to build, build at Wharton in the northwest of the United Kingdom does constitute one of the great developments of post-war uh, military aerospace, post-war UK aerospace, uh, I would argue. It's also a nice change, actually, to have words put into my mouth by, by a member of the Page family, having spent some of my career putting or putting bullet points to, to, Gordon, to Gordon for his use. Uh, and that's, in a sense, what makes this a bit different for me tonight. Normally, I, I'm there with PowerPoint zipping away on the basis of what I can see and what I can remember from, 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 from my outline. But tonight, very much, I'm, I, I could say, if, if, if there's anybody from Weybridge here, I'm going to hide behind Freddie Page's words. Because, in a sense, it's not about my analysis. It's not about the things I understand to be uh, and a, a story or a spin to make. This is very much Freddie's view of the post-war period. Because in a sense, just a little bit of background as to where, where, where this material came from. Uh, on on Freddie's death, the Royal, the, the Royal Aeronautical Society received a chunk of papers entitled Memoirs, 
with a strict, and yeah, I think, no, in fact, I think we'd had them for a while, with a strict rubric only to publish them or only to use them on the event of, uh, of my death. Uh, and truly, the, the memoirs are in their own right interesting and fascinating. He's also a pretty good writer. You could say a lot of modern chief executives could do with his style. <laughs> but a product of a good grammar school education. <laughs> so in that respect, they, looking at them, and I, they need contextualization. And that's in a way why I'm involved, why I'm putting myself between you and, uh, and Freddie's words. In the sense, I think there's a, there's a better and bigger story to tell here. And it is very much about the development of UK post-war military aircraft and some of the most interesting and most important industrial changes that have affected this industry over 30 years. That's one of the reasons why I've used this title, that Freddie was indeed a very potent engineer in his own right. And certainly, as, we'll, as you, many in this audience know, closely associated, you know, hands-dirty stuff with the Canberra and the Lightning. But later, indeed, perhaps much earlier than he'd expected, he took on a genuine business approach to building, building military aircraft. He was also part of three restructuring exercises. Whilst, in a sense, he was never at the very top of the companies that were restructured, he played or he observed from very close hand some of the most important changes in UK industrial structure. I suppose in, in a way though the two came together in the end when he became the first director of aircraft at the British Aerospace Company formed on its nationalisation in 1978. The, the first chief engineer if you like of the British aircraft industry. Not quite the last. I, I, I think um, I, have a, I have a feeling that Ivan Yates has that rather dubious, dubious um, privilege. And uh, though I'm not going to talk about this tonight, the final de Freddie's final days at British Aerospace were not entirely happy. And, and when, you, when you read the memoirs and or even my version of it, you'll see why. But I don't want to talk. I don't want to, in a sense, get anywhere near this rather unhappy title. I want to talk about the the, the, the sheer amazing career that, is, that unfolds in, in the memoirs. Now, this is a, a photograph from, 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 from Freddie's own personal collection. I think this is very much at the, at the height of his powers. I guess, and I, I, look, I look at, uh, at Gordon and his brother, I think this was probably taken in the late, late 40s, early 50s. It looks suspiciously like uh, photographs taken when he's looking at and looking after the early development of the lightning. But it's certainly a, a man who looks confident. He looks what he, he knows what he's going to do. He seems certainly in control of himself, well ready to take on senior and responsible position. But of course, as many here do know, that Freddie's own personal life, his origins, were extraordinarily humble. And again, the, the memoirs are, ex are fascinating this, that he came from relatively impoverished conditions in, in south, southwest London, he gets a scholarship to his local grammar school, Rutlish High, which incidentally also educated, I think, Morion Morgan and John Major, amongst others. From that, he gets a scholarship to Cambridge to study engineering and takes a starred first. 
So already you're dealing with, in 1938, a remarkable individual. Because there weren't that many working-class boys who get to Cambridge, let alone get starred first in engineering. There aren't that many these days. But it was already clear that he was going to be an aircraft engineer, and his memoirs, again, are, are replete with the early stimuli of getting and using his pocket money and his earnings to get flights on aircraft out of Croydon. And he said, at the age of 12, he says, I was already fascinated by aircraft and decided that I had to have full responsibility for an aircraft design organisation before the age of 35. He selected 35 because that seemed to be the oldest at which, I quote again, anyone could retain full mental and physical vigour. It's all right, He had a good time at Cambridge, by the way, and, and there's, a, there's a, an entertaining tale about his rather revolutionary politics in those days. But as I say, you'll have to leave that one rather we'll leave that one rather obscure. But he was determined to be aircraft. Even then, when leaving in 1938, he got careers advice: do anything but go into aerospace or aircraft. Anything. Go into finance. Go into oil. Again, I suspect careers advice is often given to engineers these days. But he was already determined to go into the aircraft industry. And he made his own way to Kingston, where he came under the sway of this rather formidable man. But he still, in a sense, showed early signs of steel by negotiating an extra quid out of Cam's initial offer of four pounds a week. Freddie was, again, was already unusual. The intake into the aircraft industry of academically trained engineers was only just beginning in the UK, UK aircraft. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to slip into aerospace, which is a bit of anachronism at this time, but no, forgive me if I do. He was an academically trained engineer, but the more foresighted leaders of companies were already realising they had to take on people who could understand the theory as well as simply bash out metal. And you'll find a similar strain in, in Hooker's memoir, no, not, um, I can't remember, something of an engineer, something, not, 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 much, not much of an engineer. And he was part of a new, Freddie was part of a new wave of academically trained engineer. But it was a bloody good time to get into, air, into aircraft, and certainly at, at, at Hawkers in 1938. He was too late to in, be engaged in Hurricane, but he had some fun with these aeroplanes. He took on early work with the, with the Typhoon, but more important, by 1943, he was doing some pretty advanced design work on Tempest Wing. And indeed, he was willing and able to stand up to Cam, who felt there was only room for one designer in the Hawker um, Aircraft Company. But in, in that sense, the, the, this was the making of, of the young Freddie. And as, as it was the making of a lot of individuals at this time, they got acceleration in terms of both understanding, because clearly things were happening very fast, but they also got acceleration in terms of responsibility. By the end of the war, Freddie had received a comprehensive grounding in a wide range of design and development tasks. He'd met officials. He was you know, arm-wrestling with the ministry. Even now an important characteristic of anybody dealing with the MOD. And he'd done some operational work. And all under great pressure. Not bad for someone who was then 25. 
But what is more far-sighting, foresighted, I think, about, about Freddie? He'd already seen the wave of the future, aware of what was going on in the United States, although at this stage no one knew what, just what was happening in the, in the German aircraft industry. He was already well aware that there was something happening in the realm of aerospace. Clearly he was, like many in the industry, knew what the jet was going to do by 1944. And he felt that staying at Hawker's, no matter how much responsibility he's got, progress was going to be dead man's shoes. Then he gets the letter from this man. W.E.W. or Teddy Petter. Now again, incidentally, one of, one of Teddy Petter's nephews in, is, in the, is in the audience tonight. This is another story that really has to be written. But unfortunately, no time tonight. But again, the, in, the, the, the society does have a very interesting collection of biographical essays on the life of, of Teddy Petter. But Teddy, and I, I still find it a little bit you know, vague as to how he was able to convince the ministry that he was the man with the idea that could take forward a, light, a jet engine light bomber, because he has no Westland, but didn't have much of a pedigree during the, during the Second World War. But no matter, he had the design concept in his hands, and English Electric was looking to develop its wartime experience in production. Again, the, the, this story has been well told by Fairclough and Ransom, but there's more detail, I think, to be added on how English Electric rose from nothing in, in terms of design, Certainly, as you know, it exited the industry in 1923. But from a superb production base, stood there in 1944, scratching its head and saying, what? we'd like to stay in this industry. But in order to stay in this industry, we need a designer, a design team, a project, something that will, will drag money out of what is going to be a tough post-war period. And Petter and English Electric were, a, were a, in a sense, a, a marriage made in he heaven. And... Again, to cut a, another long story short, Freddie gets invited to meet Petter. And though he was not in, too impressed by Westland's experience, nor by this man who he'd only known by, by, by reputation, he soon realised that there was an idea here. And he was also well aware, I think, then, of English Electric's willingness to put money into aircraft development. So in 1944, Freddie accepts the offer. Cam thought Freddie was mad. Nothing happens north of the Thames, he said. <laughs> and actually tried to hang on to Freddie's service by threatening him with, uh, with labour controls. But again, English Electric had worked there, and Teddy Petto, I think, was no mean lobbyist, had worked their magic to get their hands on this talented young engineer with some experience. Well, again, I don't want to spend too much time describing what is well known, the development of the design team at TC. I think it's Strand Road, isn't it? Or close to, I can't remember exactly. exactly. It's, it's, the, it's, it's, the, it's the car showroom, the garage, where the early Wharton Mafia were gathered together. Where do you call them an original mafia, I suppose? Teddy Petter was an odd, odd, odd grand, uh, godfather, but nonetheless, these were the, this was the origins. This is where they sat, the dingy garage in Preston. And a team was recruited. Or oh, incidentally, they were next door, as many know, <laughs> they know to, a, to, a, to, a, to an undertaker's. And Freddie said, if we don't get this right, we'll probably get buried by them. 
And he, he, he said quite simply that the design staff had been recruited from a wide variety of different organisations and were able to bring together the best current practice and knowledge from each. I think therein lies part of the Wharton mystique. They creamed some of the best young talent that was going. As a whole, the team was below average age and above average in talent. The odd misfit was quickly and ruthlessly weeded out. Now, as I say, the, from these primitive conditions, we know, for, we know here as a, bunch of, as a bunch of historians, we get the development of the Canberra, a story that is well known. Picture of the first flight. We, we, managed to, we managed to turn up. I don't think these were genuinely are generally available, according to Chris. I don't think they think this is, these are a, a unique set, aren't they? They've been in books, but we've got we've got a we've got a, a lovely sequence of the the first flight of the, of the Canberra. Apparently, Wharton has a real early a real first flight photograph, but I'm, we're not, not going to split hairs. <coughs> and we know that this went into full production in 1915. We also see in 1948, and this is where, in a sense, Freddie really begins to crack his teeth on what would become the P1. And in 1948, we, we see the whole lot move out of the garage and go to Wharton. And Wharton is the centre of a whole raft of private investment in research facilities, virtually unprecedented in UK aircraft industry history, certainly at that period, all again down to English Electric's money. And I think, in a sense, that Freddie, in his memoirs, gives full credit to the English electric investment and a willingness to, to risk private cash on first-rate facilities. And in 1950, this is, an, this is always an interesting photograph of, of the Canberra team with B. Beaumont, to the front as ever, and the diffident engineers in glasses at the back. Not a, not, I gather, an un usual set of circumstances where B. Beaumont was concerned. And the only man I see wearing a white or light-coloured raincoat. But this, I think, is, is the project, of course, which, in a sense, is Freddie's first independent programme. Although, at the, initially, it wasn't. It was still supposed to be under Petter's leadership. But in 1950, Petter resigns suddenly. And Freddie is capital, cap, catapulted into full responsibility for taking on what would be the most, perhaps the most advanced single project of the 1950s. Now, in a sense, not only did it bring him into contact as it's a responsibility for the program, it also brought him into direct contact and direct confrontation with the reason for Petter's resignation, the formidable Arthur Sheffield, English Electric's production manager at the Strand Road facility. Now, in a sense, this is going to be, I, I suspect, the, 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 the next the story I'm going to tell, really. Because the problems that Petter experienced with Sheffield, then inherited by Freddie, would not only, in a sense, provide an interesting insight into what we might, we might call what was wrong with British industry during the 1950s, and certainly what I think certainly handicapped the development of English electric aviation during the 1950s, but in a sense will lead me to my second strand in this, in this story, the effect it would have on the mergers in 1959-60 and the history of the TSR2, TSR2 program. Uh, again, no 
bones about this. The guy on the left is Nelson uh, Sheffield, Arthur Sheffield is the guy on the left here. And on the, right, on the far right is, 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 is what would become Lord Nelson, the, the, the English electric chairman. The middle chap is, is, is Stafford Cripps. But no matter. Sheffield was an astonishing chap. He came from nowhere again, like, very much like Freddie. He was a, a working-class boy. But man and boy, he was an English electric production man. Came up through the factory. He became um, Lord Nelson's protege. And certainly they were both very close as could be expect, as might be able to, to, to men of different class during this period. And certainly it was Sheffield who had turned English electric aircraft during aircraft production during the war into the first rate plant that I suspect also attracted the ministry to encourage English electric to stay in the business. They were just good at turning out aeroplanes. And I think the ministry wanted that capability kept in the, kept in the UK. But really, there was substantial friction between Sheffield, Chef as he was, was nicknamed, and these wavy, fair, airy, fairy intellectuals that have come to design aeroplanes and put them in my factories. Sheffield ruled, and Freddie's words are, are pretty precise, they were echoed in a sense, I think also by, by, by um, anybody who knew Sheffield, as an absolute monarch, rewarding devoted service and intolerant of any outside interference. He was a production man from the bones and regarded all designers as an evil influence. (laughs) Necessary, perhaps, but to be kept in isolation where they could not disrupt his factory with their continuing changes. Petter, you see, wanted control. This was the the ethos, of course, of the aircraft industry. Chief engineers would brook no interference from anybody. They They would run their factories. They would tell the production guy, here's the design. I mean, the story of Barnes-Wallace producing, you know, developing unproducible designs and then having arguments with people, the likes of George Edwards, about geodetics. You know, they were lovely, lovely engineering, but lousy to produce. Um, Sheffield took the other view. You know, we, we, we'll, we'll have your designs because we couldn't have product without it, but keep out of my bloody factory if you want these thing, this thing done. But that was okay if you're building trains and trams and stuff. But when you're developing what was then the most com- one of the most complex airplanes ever built in the UK aerospace industry, you were going to get changes, many changes, and especially with a customer like the British government. So you could see that Petter didn't like to lose control, Sheffield didn't like to lose control, but when push came to shove and when Petter demanded an independent operation at Wharton, capable of producing prototypes, building prototypes, based on his designs, um, Sheffield went apoplectic and appealed to, to appeal to his boss, Nelson. And Petter left, rather than fight his corner. This didn't go unnoticed outside, by the way. There's a lovely, interesting contemporary article in Flight that noted that the aircraft division of English Electric was, if not unique, unusual in having no experimental shop. And in this connection, the Canberra was not a prototype in the normally understood sense of the term. It should not be thought that undue emphasis is placed on the activities of the aircraft division. On the contrary, we gain the impression during our visit that so far as the company per se is concerned, aircraft are just another commodity. This to us was somewhat astonishing. 
Well, as I said, Christmas 1949, things came to a head. Petter packs his bags. Uh, and incidentally, is it this was not unusual for, for, for Teddy Petter. This is the way he'd left Westland in 1944. Freddie th- tried to convince Petter to fight it out and was prepared to support a deputation to, to, to Nelson. Petter, however, was not to, his mind was not going to be changed and he effectively left English Electric in 1949, taking with him some of the Wharton team. He invited Freddie to go with him, but Freddie said no, I was going to fight for the Wharton design team and would not go back on that. Uh, incidentally, Teddy would also invite him to join Follins in 1957. And again, similar sort of response. Freddie was now in sole charge of English Electric's aircraft operations, but he had to face up to Chef. Now, there we are, 34, 35, and incidentally, you could... Interesting that Teddy, Freddie had actually achieved his boyhood ambition, running an aircraft design team by the time he was 35, was going to take on you know, a Gorgon who was well-connected with the boss, and he was going to set terms. In a confidential note to the younger Nelson, who actually was the, was the board was the, 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 the board representative for, for, for the, uh, the aircraft representative on, on the main board. The nature of the aircraft design in business, in particular relations between designers, works, and customer, differs considerably from most other branches of engineering. Close and continuous contact between design department and works at managing director level is essential to avoid misunderstanding, and in companies concerned wholly with aircraft, this is usually recognized by giving seats on the board to the heads of both sides. Now, he recognized that this was not practical in the case of English Electric. Trying to move that behemoth into accepting that designers, chief engineers, even reputed, reputable and famous production managers beyond the board was something of an anathema. He was still determined to stake out a position for the design team at Wharton. And it becomes a condition of taking on the new responsibilities that he gets what Petter failed to get the independent design team, and production facility for prototypes at Wharton. I think Freddie recognised that he had the management over a barrel. You know, to lose one chief executive in, in a matter of I, I, suddenly, but to lose another within three or four weeks is a little bit below, bit beneath uh, uh, the, what beggars, descript, beggars a, a description. Oh, what seems to have happened in, in France recently. <laughs> but nonetheless, he got his department... He got, an, he got an independent testing facility with BBMont. And he promised that the design team would not seek to usurp or undermine works authority in any way. But mutual support and collaboration are essential. This apparently was grudgingly accepted by Sheffield. And there is a sort of one-line response from Sheffield to the terms. We accept that this is going to happen and we'll get on with it. So by 33, his boyhood ambition to become head of an aircraft design organisation was two years ahead of schedule. The trouble is, although he got a modus vivendi, he thought with Sheffield, and got it written in his contract, and got this research and development team and a production facility at Wharton, he still had to get his aircraft produced in series. And that still meant Sheffield. And this was another decade's worth, and in a, in a sense it was still going to be a long grind, drawn-out struggle between design and production. I mean, Sheffield, in a sense, 
had his point. He had factories to fill. But again, he didn't really care whether he's filling his factories with aeroplanes, English electric designed aeroplanes or somebody else's, or trams, or trains. No, he was looking to turn a good bottom line out of his, out of his factories. Now, the, one of the things that, that, that Freddie did have to fight in the early days was that, that Sheffield wanted to get contracts for the Swift, subcontracts to fill his factories. I mean, this was appalling. It, with, in the light of hindsight, by the way, as, as you know, the Swift was not one of the more successful products that came out of the UK aerospace industry in the 50s. It meant that it would really have buggered up the Canberra production program. And I think, in a sense, here, again, Freddie had to fight hard to ensure that the serious production of Canberra was kept under complete control at English Electric. But he would find himself with all sorts of problems. He'd have production staff swift at, shifted at short notice by Sheffield onto, onto those trams and, trams and genera- electrical generators. There would be sudden shifts in production, diversion of facilities and machine tools, and Sheffield also interfered in work staff, allocate, staff allocation. So, another confrontation, this time head-to-head, face-to-face, nose-to-nose, if you like. And Freddie told Chef in no uncertain ways that he was going to take him on. He'd not give up like Petter had done. He also made it clear to Sheffield that my, he might have his Cambridge education, but his upbringing had been as tough as Sheffield's. And being younger... He said, I will take you on for as long as it takes. I think the, the meeting would have been an interesting one to observe at first hand, I suspect, given that um, Sheffield was quite able to turf a, a, a board mem- an English electric board member out of, out of his office if he'd gone on on one occasion when he was talking about production or was witting on about production and Sheffield took exception to what he was saying. So I think it must have been a pretty interesting confrontation between the young chief, his chief engineer and this hard arsed as George Edwards would describe, production manager. Again, a temporary improvement, and there would be continuing problems between English Electric aircraft, the design team, and the production staff at, at, at Strand Road um, for the rest of the 1950s. And again, this would have profound implications for the industrial upheaval that was to come. Because looking back at this period, Freddie is nothing if not wistful. It was a great pity that a first-class pre-war and wartime works manager could not adapt to a changing environment. We could have made a first-class team. Freddie clearly felt that Sheffield's limited vision and bloody-minded character did have a long-term impact on the future of English Electric. Better handle, Freddie said, Possibly the history of TSR2, BAC, and even BEAE might have differed. You could say the subtext is that Wharton would have had even more influence. But the 50s, in a sense, were, were, a, were an immense period of, of achievement. That Again, that the memoirs are, are, are full of, of stories of P1 and lightning development. Freddie nearly lost his life uh, in, in look, looking for one of his test pilots that had gone down in the, in the, in, in the Ribble. Is the Ribble? No. Yes, in the Ribble, on the Ribble estuary. Uh, and uh, undoubtedly, again, the, the Lightning was probably one of the, you know, the finest pieces of, of, of post-war um, uh, aerospace engineering. And uh, during his Wharton early days at Wharton and throughout the 50s, he would develop a style of 
of, of engineering, of business management, of man management, which in many respects was ahead of certainly the aircraft industry, perhaps ahead of, of, of many in British industry generally during this period. And again, the, the memoirs are, are full rightly of the, of the pride he had in establishing what would become known as the Wharton Bible of, of, of project management, financial control, and his own personal style of mentoring individuals, many of whom we have become signal, fact, feature, signal uh, personalities in the 1960s and 1970s, people like George, George um, Ivan Yates, Sid Gillibrand, <coughs> and the like. But in a sense, the, the, the issue now is, in a sense, where do we go from the, 19, the 1950s? Extab uh, Freddie is an established chief engineer with a massively successful project under his belt. But the world is about to change. Again, the, the summary here of the history is, is, we all know, 1957, the Sandys White Paper, government-inspired decisions to force the aerospace industry to merge and to rationalize, and one of the key techniques by which proud, independent UK companies, often still controlled by that dominant chief engineer, if not the original founder of the company, like Hanley Page, would be contract manipulation. OR339, the ominous words, the last combat aircraft to be designed and built in the United Kingdom before we were all taken over by missiles and guided weapons generally. This would be the big carrot that would encourage the mergers. Again, I, think, I don't think anybody is unfamiliar with the story of the TSR-2, so I'm only going to talk about the bits from Freddie's, Freddie's perspective. I mean, get me, don't be getting wrong, Freddie was, was a realist, like many in the industry, like any, certainly of his generation. The UK industry was, was flabby, it, was over, it, was over, it had overcapacity, and certainly too many design centres. But if the government was going to push the companies together, he was clearly of the opinion, and certainly events would confirm this, using a contract to drive companies together was not the way one rationally would do it. There is certainly a, a, lo a large amount of, 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 of sour grapes attached to this, it should be said, because it's quite evident that Freddie was very clear which team and which design should have been OR339's core. And incidentally, the memoirs do contain some interesting insights into, the, into his design philosophy of the P-17. But he was convinced that the pedigree at Wharton, supersonics, two successful military programs delivered more or less, I think more or less to cost, certainly, certainly on time. No one else in the industry with that kind of experience. It was a you know open and shut case, wasn't it? P17 will be the base of the base at the base at the heart of the heart of the the program, and Wharton would be the project managers. Ah, well, as you as we all know, there is a Deus Ex Machina lurking here. It's the fact that English Electric and Vickers, at the top level, felt that. Mm, it would be a good idea to, to merge military and civil work. English Electric clearly didn't have any civil work. Vickers were the uncrowned stars at this stage of, of, of civil aerospace, as well as having a good, big military aircraft experience. Not so good with fighters, though, during this period, it should be said. Although the um, team at Supermarine 
would come up with some interesting concepts of systems, which, as we all know, would attract the ministry very heavily indeed. Now, again, a story well known, although not too well known, not to include some further work, uh, and I found some interesting papers from, from, from Lord Caldicott that detail the, the, the nine months of Vickers, English Electric, and de Havilland negotiations, and some interesting tales to be told there, gentlemen, which I might come back to maybe in a year or so time. But it was evident that the real issue would be merging the Vickers and English Electric programs to produce a coherent answer to OR339. And that was certainly what the ministry wanted, because they were attracted to the P17, but they were also attracted to the Vickers um, systems concepts. It became a question of who was going to lead the program. Wharton had the supersonic experience. Vickers had a good reputation as a production deliverer. The Valiant, again, stands as a, stands a time as a superb piece of, of military aerospace investment. And, of course, Weybridge was run by the formidable Sir George Edwards. And, according to Freddie, he was a lot, clo lot closer to the lobbying than we were at Preston. But they still felt they had the lead, and certainly up to, the, up to, the, up to early July 1959, the ministry was seen to be favouring Wharton as the design, design team leader, during the summer of 1558. As Freddie recalls, however, Edwards undoubtedly used his formidable powers of persuasion during 1958 and 59 to lobby Vickers into pole position. He was also able to use the known problems with English Electric's production outfit as a reason why English Electric was not fit, perhaps, to lead a complex development and production program. Everybody in the industry knew Sheffield. Edwards had personal experience of Sheffield's behavior. He'd been there when Caldicott had been chucked out of, uh, out of Chef's office. Cooker knew this as well, by the way. There's, there's, element, there's, a, there's references to it in his biography. So, certainly, in Freddie's view, therefore, this was the, the lever that dragged the contract out of the deserving hands of the Wharton team. Vickers, on the other hand, even though, even, even, even though um, Weybridge was part of the broader Vickers engineering outfit, as you know, Edwards had direct control over everything that happened. George Edwards' writ ran to every corner of the plant, which in, in, in Robert Gardner's view was the deciding factor. Incidentally, this is a superb book, the authorised biography of, uh, of, of, of Edwards, George Edwards. And it was certainly the view of, of Handel Davies, then a senior MO, Minister of Supply official, writing in the, in, who attended the, the TSR2 conference here, that Edwards' reputation and Vickers' experience of, of, of design and development and production was the reason why Wharton lost the leadership. The project demanded, Handel Davies said, a leader of the stature of Sir George Edwards. There was also, I think Freddie also realised that the ministry was looking to put some military work into, into Vickers and it would have seemed that far too high a proportion of the RAF's major combat aircraft were in one company's hands. 
you know, a bit of bugging's turn here, I think. So in January 1959, we get the TSR2 design study contract announced. It would be a merger of two designs, and it would be a Vickers-Weybridge-led program. I mean, Freddie had wanted to, to, to put a design team together that was based on merit. So even if, I think, I think he had this view at the back of his mind that even if Weybridge might get nominal leadership, the Walton team would be the leading elements in the program still. But that is, again, not what happened, and Freddie bitterly writes, and in all fairness, the, this is one of the interests about uh, uh, someone's first-hand memoirs. You can still feel the emotion in many of these things. Vickers' men were appointed to lead every major aspect of the project. And with George Edwards much more occupied with civil problems than TSR2, these men took every opportunity to grind the English electric team into the ground and being inexperienced in this class of aircraft, accepted the most outrageous demands from the customer, thus sealing the fate of the TSR-2. English Electric, he felt, was firmly treated as a subcontractor, and that the team at Weybridge took on all sorts of requirements from the customer without thinking of the implications they would have for smooth, easy, and cost-controlled development. Freddie complained on one occasion and was told at a, in, a, in a meeting with the ministry. And George took Freddie into a corridor and tore a, off a strip that he behaved outrageously in the meeting, complaining and demanding some rationality in the ministry's demands. But these, con these and other concerns expressed by the Wharton team were often dismissed as a moan from the disgruntled loser of the competition, now a mere subcontractor. The trouble was, Freddie argues, that the much-vaunted Vickers management strength never materialized on TSR2, and people inexperienced in supersonic technology were given free reign. In his view, the team that came to the TSR2, with one or two honorable exceptions, were on the verge of retirement, some were ill, and all were spread thinly. Because this was the time that Vickers were experiencing major problems with Vanguard and VC-10. Now, it, it, again, in all fairness, and it should be said, by the way, that, that Freddie would later have a very close and very warm relationship with George Edwards. That George was there for the political lobbying and for the big inquests into time and cost overruns and all that stuff. But the team that had been assembled, in Freddie's view, was not as good as it could have been if it, had not, if, it, if, it, if it had been selected on merit. But again, it, it should be said that looking at it from the other side of the, perspective, uh, the, the, the river, and again, Gardner's book is, 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 is very interesting on this, that the problems that Freddie was experiencing with Sheffield were continuing, and there were difficulties in getting some of the pre-production stuff out of Preston. TSR2 being developed, as, 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 as you all know, as a batch of aeroplanes. And I quote Gardner here. They weren't used to this kind of work and got into a tangle. Weybridge was used to prototype construction, and in the end, I had to move it to Weybridge, though such was never my intention at the time of the deal. Now, you know, Freddie, I think, was... was uh, there's, there's, a, there's a history of, 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 of exchanges between writers and authors on this period, and certainly Freddie thinks a lot of this was grossly exaggerated. And the experience of the Cameron Lightning would suggest that Wharton did know how to build prototypes. Many of the Weybridge men were so concerned with investigating 
and criticising Preston and sometimes Wharton, God forbid, that they failed to maintain proper control over their own responsibilities. But I suppose out of, out of this came something. With the formation of BAC, with the, the importance of the TSR2 contract, Freddie finally got control over aircraft production at what was then reformed as the Northern Division of BAC Aircraft. And I think this made a significant difference in getting the TSR2 production at Preston back on track. Things improved markedly, particularly in information flow and clearance of any bottlenecks in TSR2 development batch manufacture. Such was the change in Freddie's view that Edwards and his production manager Horton was forced to change their minds about the northern outfit, especially when Preston-built components began to arrive before Vickers were really ready for them. Now, at that point, in a sense, the teams begin to, do begin to, 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 to meld. But it's an indication of the problems, again, about this contract. The two sides were always prepared, certainly in the early 60s, to spend time and energy blaming each other for the programme problems. And I think that certainly took their eye off some of the problems. Not that, of course, as we know, that BAC had much control over anything in this prime, not because they weren't necessarily competent, but the ministry were providing half the, half of the deal, supplying engines, supplying avionics, and all the stuff that was supposed to make the TSR2, the singing, dancing aeroplane, was late or wrong or simply inadequate. And the, the whole program, of course, as we know, goes pear-shaped. And Freddie, in a sense, dubious honour, Sir George, becomes the final, you could say, final program manager for the TSR2 program in the spring of 1964. Something of a poison chalice, as we know. The doubtful honour, dubious honour, of taking over TSR2, which was cancelled shortly after. Now, in a way, this brings us to a point where Freddie enters a different world. Now, up to this point, he'd been a design engineer, a chief engineer, uh, troubleshooting programmes. But at this point, he becomes head of, or had been appointed head of, the Northern Division of BAC. He was now, in a sense, taking control over significant chunks of the BAC operation. Indeed, he, he, Sir George Edwards was prepared to offer him control over the whole, the whole, the whole of the BAC civil operation. But, felt, but Freddie again felt he needed to stay at Wharton to manage the, manage the cancellation and the transition and the problems that would that flow from it. Now, one of the deals that he and, Sir George, he and Sir George Edwards managed was to keep Wharton alive. Because Wharton was, after TSR2, on the verge of being closed. Certainly it was in George Edwards' mind that the Preston outfit would be sacrificed. Now, there's an interesting debate here, not posthumous, if you like, between Edwards and, uh, 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 and Page over who is responsible for saving, saving Wharton. They both uh, do lay claim to this, this singular event. <laughs> but what is um, uh, undoubtedly the case is, I think, between them, they, they found their sacrificial victim. It was Luton, crushed between Weybridge and Wharton. A very good design outfit... Very interesting production outfit at Luton, Hunting's at Luton, absorbed in BAC in 1960-61, with two very interesting dowry designs, Provost and the one at what would become the 111, gets 
the elbow. And I think, to my mind, this is, this is, this is a sign that, that Freddie was capable of playing industrial hardball. That he was capable of being ruthless to the point of, well, I say criminality because something had to go. But there was a loyalty to Wharton and a rationality in taking um, the provost up to, up, to, up to the north, given that we then beget, had the beginnings of what would become the big deal with the Saudis, the package deal to supply training and strike aircraft. But I think it's also true that I think at this point Freddie does earn the undying loyalty of his colleagues in the Northwest. Uh, and ATF Simmons, one of Freddie's juniors at the time, remembers this period and pays tribute to his lead, Freddie's leadership and determination to bring new work to the Preston Division. Quote, Freddie, of course, led us from the front. He gave us hope that at least three of six lines of development would come to fruition. In fact, over the next three years, all six came off, one after another. So I, I, I'm, inclined, I'm, I'm inclined, as it were, to take the, the biographer's case here and that, say that Freddie helped to save Wharton. Now, time is pressing on, and I, 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 wonder, I, I know you're all keen to get involved in discussion. But I just have one final period. And this is the, the creation, of, and, we, and we, in a sense, fast forward to, 1970, to 1978. By now, Freddie had taken over the whole of BAC aircraft activities, and he's very blunt about the legacy he would inherit at the civil division of BAC in 1971-72. Not a happy state of affairs. He's not impressed with what was happening and at, on, for the, under the Concorde program or at Waybridge in general. But that's, a, again, a, a story perhaps for the, for, the, for the full book. But in the mid-70s, he gets involved, of course, in the nationalization and the creation of British aerospace. And what I think is interesting... And this is where I will conclude with two points. Firstly, this man on the left, Frank Beswick, Lord Beswick, who would become his, the first chairman of British Aerospace. Freddie's not too impressed with some of his bosses over the years. And he certainly was not too impressed with the people that followed Beswick, to say the bloody least. However, he is very impressed with Beswick's moral courage. Standing up to his ex-colleagues in government backing the industrial team over crucial decisions, including that getting us officially back into the Airbus program. And I think it, 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 it's worth saying tonight just how much I think Freddie thinks that Beswick is the true creator of the unified British aircraft industry. And again, a, a man whose contribution to the industry is not necessarily... Well, as well understood as it should be. But more to the point, Freddie was appointed to run BAE aircraft, which meant they would have to take on board Hawker Siddeley and, of course, Scottish Aviation as well. But he had learnt from the 1950s. His approach, and here was, he was well, well and ably helped by, by Rubian, Rubis, I can never pronounce this guy, Eric Rubithan from Hawker. They were going to pick the best available from both organizations and to let them get on with creating an organizational structure that would work. They agreed together 
to set up a group of the most senior people from the three previous organisations to look at our total facilities and personnel and then come up with a proposed organisation. Eventually, Freddie told them, you've got to work this system, so you sort out how to do it. The HQ team will be responsible for strategic management. Operational activity will be sorted out by those responsible for it. This was going to be hands-off management. And he was going to encourage, and indeed developed in the first few years of British Aerospace, a very rigorous system of reporting, of two-way control and two-way information activity. There was going to be a strict strategic plan of what projects and what was to be commit, what investments were to be made. And again, I, again, I, I'm, I'm running out of time now, so I, I can't go into the detail of, of how Freddie assembles a strategic plan for military and civil. But he tells a wonderful story how he and the permanent secretary at the Ministry of Defence, a guy called Frank, Coop, um, uh, Frank Cooper, sorted out in 20 minutes the AV-8B. Interestingly enough, he also felt there were problems with BAE's regional aircraft operation. In his view, the 146 should have gone, and certainly the ATP should have gone. He's unequivocal about the latter. And certainly, in, when he left BAE Systems, when he writes about the, the subsequent history of BAE, he is extraordinarily vitriolic about the failure of strategic control at the heart of BAE, which allowed regional operation to get out of control. He also is vitriolic about his relations with Arnold Weinstock, and there's no doubting who he blames for the, a the Nimrod AEW fiasco. And one lovely confrontation at, early, at one stage in the, in the Nimrod program. I told Weinstock in no uncertain terms that the Nimrod AEW equipment program was in such a poor state that it seemed likely the whole program would be cancelled and the radar for Tornado ADV was in little better shape. You remember the blue circle radar, yeah? the concrete in the nose? Weinstock, Freddie remembers, displayed his customary indifference to such technicalities. After all, Marconi was reporting good profits and saying all was well. Actually, he thought this, and he again writes in a disgusted way, that this is not the way to deal with the customer. But nonetheless, I think, in the way, I think Freddie's last tribute, I think the, the, the tribute one could have to, to Freddie Page, is the way I think he his contribution, along with Frank Bezik and others, to the creation of the, of, of, of the modern British aerospace. I know it is no longer the kind of creation or the kind of company that Freddie or any, if you like, respectable aerospace engineer would recognize. But undoubtedly, the framework and, and structures that he put in place, and again, I have to agree with him, sadly dismembered for a time in the 1980s, but recreated in large measure by one of his last pupils, Dick Evans. It is, I think, a fitting tribute to this aerospace engineer and businessman. I'm going to end with a quote from New Scientist, 2nd of May 1957, where there's a description, not by aerospace engineers, of the, of the, of, of the Preston team. At Preston, Page has had an excellent team. His policy has been to use them, giving them responsibility, and trusting them to stick to their work until the answer comes up. But then there's a description of Freddie himself. And this is where I will finish tonight. Because I think, it, in a sense, it's, a, a, again, a, an interesting insight into to a man who it's often required, regarded as being quiet but firm in his personal relations, particularly his professional relations at, uh, uh, in the industry. 
One of the curious things that these young men show no signs of the strain they put on themselves. Although, as I think, uh, as I think Gordon knows, that his dad was, uh, was suffering a, a, a lot of strain at this time. Page, in all, to all appearance, is a young 40. His fair complexion still has clear and smooth, as clear and smooth as a child's, is barely touched by the lines of perplexity. Behind his spectacles is a pair of bright blue eyes that dance occasionally in good humour and mischief. But there is nothing to suggest easy acceptance of an optimistic forecast, nothing to hint at swift jumping to conclusions, nothing remotely resembling the unconsidered decision or the cordial thoughtless agreement with another's opinion on the spur of the moment. And I think this does aptly summarise the precepts of Freddie Page, engineer, aerospace engineer and businessman. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for a fascinating and sympathetic biography, which I've enjoyed and I'm sure everyone else has. Um, now, um, if Peter and Peter Elliott could take microphones from the table, we'll take discussion. Yes, because this is where you guys now can help me. Yes, because Keith earlier told me that he wants to hear your memories of Freddie Page, so that when he writes the book, he can on the material he has already. So who would like to be first? Uh, Frank Armstrong, first may I congratulate our speaker on an excellent lecture, very thought-provoking, and it rang true, I'm sure, to all of us here. Um, the question I'd like to uh, invite Keith to toy with for a moment or two is uh, concerns the civil world. Um, Freddie Page um, spent a great deal of his time and energy uh, and loyalty, if you like, um, taking care of Wharton, taking care of the military operations. Um, as time went on into the 70s, it must have become obvious to him that uh, really the the military market was perhaps levelling out, mm. military market for aeroplanes, mm. uh, the trends for going towards missiles and things like that, uh, were, and, and of course the, the very high cost of military and the relative stability in the world with, between the two superpowers. Mm. And yet the civil markets were really beginning to take off. And I just wondered whether... Uh, it is evident from the memoirs whether Freddie Page was ever sort of tempted to become more enthusiastic about the civil world on the basis that he might have seen a greater scope for the exercise of his own talents and also those of his company in really developing into the big markets that were emerging on the civil side. Yeah, I, got, I got two points about this. Um, firstly, it's interesting to say that, that Freddie, in his memoir, says he always wanted to get involved in civil aircraft. Right from the very beginning, it is airliners in the 1930s that, 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 took his, that took his attention. But of course, it, you know, we didn't build um, anything commercial from, from 38 onwards, or at least we didn't design anything new. 
Uh, of course, by then he'd got tangled up with, with the military aircraft. But he was always said that he, he had this hankering to get back into the to not to, to start um, uh, his career with some military air, with some civil aircraft. And I think it was with great reluctance that he, that he turned George Edwards down in in, in sixty six. Uh, when he was offered to offered a, the, the, the you know, position to run Weybridge, well, that would have actually, that would have been interesting because I know someone in the back here has written all about the BAC civil programs of the 1960s. So he would have been tangled up with 211 and 311, uh, as, as well as Concord. Um, by the time he gets his hands on all these programs, in a way, he was now too senior. He was a, he was by the 70s a manager. He was looking at strategic issues. But it's evident, again, from his memoirs, but more interesting also from some of the published works that he did in this period, he was all too conscious of market trends. And he was more than willing, as it were, when he, when he became a, um, head of BAE. Uh, at BAC, I think his connection with civil work by then was damage control. You know, the, the aftermath of the 311 was a problem, and he also had to cope with the cancellation of Concord, well, you know, the termination of, of the Concord program. Incidentally, there's a very, some interesting stories of the negotiations over cancellation and subsequent compensation payments with one Tony Benn. He's not, while he very, has very high admiration of Frank Bezik as a, as a socialist, he does not have quite such a high opinion as Tony Benn. But he wasn't. He was also a rational man. He, I, I don't think you see one of the things that grips me about Rat Freddy. He was. He was not an idealist. He loved aeroplanes, but he never, I think, had the, the 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 angel dust approach to aircraft. They had to make money. And I think one of the things that he realised that civil aircraft had to be, you know, they had to hit a market. And whilst the general market for civil aircraft was going up in the seventies, he wasn't convinced that the product he had at his disposal was the right product. He was convinced about Airbus that the inheritance from Hawker Siddeley was, was thoroughly backed. And again, although he, he, he didn't have direct um, responsibility for, for the program, because he, he, he left that very much to the, to, to, to the Hawker Siddeley team, he is very, again, and he, again it, it reflects in his attitude towards Bezik, who fought his corner for the Airbus people um, against all sorts of interesting demands to get BA, BAE involved with Boeing. That he was that he that he saw that as the future. Uh, it, it's not a romantic view. It's a it's an aerospace realist view of where things should and ought to go. And, I, I, and I'm 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 not going to say that hindsight hasn't proven him right. On 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 the choices and views he had about where the where the civil market was going in the 70s and 80s. And, it, and as far as he was concerned, it wasn't going to be small, medium-sized regional aircraft. Yes, I, perhaps I could just come back and say that. Uh, that's very much what I had in mind, but I, I, I wondered whether, um, with this very realistic view and his ability to think with great clarity uh, about strategic issues, whether he could see this huge opportunity with Airbus, and he might have been, uh, he might have been interested in leading the company into that in a positive way. Yeah. I think he, well, that's, that's unfair. He did, he was positive. He's, I mean, indeed, he, he was very positive. Certainly, he, he, when he'd retired, he, he, he was sufficiently engaged with things as to take BAE to task over what he, what he believed, getting ex bad bargaining on the A320, a belief that, um, they could have that BAE could have driven a much higher bargain with HMG over launch, launch investment. So I don't think he, no, he, he was engaged. Um, but it was, a, you know, it's a, but it was a, you know, 
money. You, you know, we're not going to build these things simply because they're nice to build or because they're marginal. It keeps people employed. I mean, he, again, he, although he, he was very conscious that the hardest job he ever had was to sack people, close plant and all the rest of it. But you know, it was always the case that if it couldn't earn the money, it had to go. My name is Rodney Giesler. Um, about ten years ago, I was very privileged to interview Freddie Page for a sound archive. I've got that. Yes, you yes. have. Yes, I've, yes. And um, uh, thank when you. I, you sent it to me. I thank you very much. I did. You're yes. welcome. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I approached him, he was very, very reluctant because the tornado ADV and its blue circle yeah. radar was uh, blue cement. Um, yes, blue circle. That's the one. Blue circle radar uh, yeah. was getting a hard time from the popular press, and I was labelled as a popular press, and he didn't oh, want right. to uh, mm. accept me as an interviewer. But he eventually uh, accepted my explanation. And um, um, compared to what you were telling, you are telling me tonight about his um, tremendous strength and power of personality, uh, I was impressed by his very self-effacing oh. nature and shyness. Mm. And he gave me the most marvelous interview, very understated, very clear. And um, I'm very glad I managed to record him. Mm. Just yeah. to it's it, actually the, thank you for reminding me because the, 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 the sort of that sort of material is still a useful insight i mean he, i mean he, he doesn't add much from the tapes that aren't, weren't more more extensively out, uh, outlined in his memoirs um but again he, he looking back on the confrontations he would have with people you know from the point when he negotiated the extra quid with cam and there are stories in the memoirs of how he stood up to, you know, stood up to the man. You know, Cam had this habit of walking around factories and looking at designs, saying, you know, "What's bloody all going on here? What's this rubbish?" Um, and 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 having to, you know, be convinced that, that, that he's not employed and incompetent. Every, you know, and by and large, the people would sort of hide behind their design boards when Cam lurked. But you know, Freddie would stand up to him and say, "This is what this is what I've done. This is how it works. You know, show me." That it doesn't work, and Cam would huff and puff and say, "Yeah, that's all right," and he'd go. And, and again, standing up to Sheffield, who must have been an amazingly formidable chap. And I, I, I don't have any experience of that kind of person in my life, but I'm, I'm sure many around here have met that kind of bloke. Um, sort of, and again, George Edwards was not a not, again not a, not a shrinking violet, and, and to forge a very close working relationship of mutual respect with, I mean, it goes all the way through. And then to take on Weinstock, Weinstock was, a, you know, I mean, I, I, there's a very good biography of Weinstock, which I think reveals just what, you know, what damage the man did to, to a large chunk of UK and high technology. And I think to stand up to, 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 to Weinstock and tell him, you, you know, it's you and your company that's bollocksing up not just the, 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 the ADV, but also the, the, the Nimrod AEW. As well as the ministry, because again, uh, Freddie sees the clear signs of, the, of what you call the TSR two complex in the, the Nimrod AEW. You know, giving HSA or BAE by then, you know, responsibility without power uh, was something which uh, again had characterised the TSR two, a habit which the ministry appears to have in in big, costly, big the big complex programmes. I think still, still, still not entirely. Um, without case, I, I think this is this rather this large ship that's supposed to be built to carry aeroplanes. I think the ministry is its own project manager. Which, uh, track record is a very good one. Yeah, sorry, back to yeah. No, I can I, yeah, but uh, yeah, I think you're right that this, it, this, this, I, I haven't yet got around to talking to people about about Freddie as a person, but it, I, uh, that's already coming out. There was a nice talk given by um, Ron Fairclough up, uh, up at uh, Wharton, and he was known for sort of. Being being a bit isolated and sort of the, 
out there. But turning up for a retirement do. You know, an unprecedented to have a senior guy turning up for a relatively junior's retirement do. Um, I talked to um, Peter Fichtmuller. Um, I, knew, I knew him, uh, Peter Fichtmuller, who used to run um, the European Trade Association. But he, he worked with, um, at the time with, with, with MBB and was one of the juniors to um, Madelung. And Madelung and Freddie had a, a, a long and cordial working relationship on the MRC tor- MRCA tornado. And again, similar sorts of reaction. Freddie would have this habit of talking quietly and people would start listening. Uh, a good habit, that. Talk quietly and people begin to listen. Um, Graziano Freschi, um, I wondered um, if you could touch upon uh, the way Freddie Page dealt with transition from UK-only yeah. military aircraft to the new pan-European oh. scene, starting with the Anglo-French oh. geometry and then tornado. Yes. Was he a, a little... A little Englander, or was he a European? Oh. Uh, as a as a continental European, yeah. I'm curious about no, that. Yeah, he, Freddie built Freddie, Freddie built airplanes, and Freddie would build airplanes, I think, with the devil if it gave him a half a good contract. Um, but yes, um, the, again, the memoirs have some in, uh, interesting sidelights into relations with the French. AFVG is a very good case. Those of you who don't know the history of this, this was, this was a one of the packages put together in the. Aftermath of TSR two, the French, the British, the French would lead the Jaguar. Again, and by the way, Freddie is extraordinarily. He has a lot of lot of nice things to say about the Jaguar and the Jaguar team, including the, the way in which they could outwit Dasso. <laughs> Even when Dasso had taken over Breguet, the French partners to to BAC on the Jaguar. <clears throat> He's even nicer about it. He has a nice story about how one, on one occasion the, the, the French Dassault complained about his British aerospace, his tactics in, in flogging the hawk. Pot calling the kettle black in, in, in Freddie's view. <coughs> but he, yes, he, in that sense, I think Freddie was again a realist. This is the way to go. Um, he, 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 he felt the Brits were, or the British government had it, had, had, like, like, you know, um, George, because George Edwards and he were both involved with the AFVG um, fiasco, were quite clear that Dassault pulled a fast one on the British government, or the French together, French government and Dassault pulled a fast one on the, uh, on the British government. But when it came to Tornado, there's no doubting that he saw the way to go. And the experience of working at Sepicat, the, the, the company that was created to, to run the Jaguar program, he has nothing but, uh, again, um, positive things to say about collaboration. But I think, I think he also shared his, his, his boss's view, George's view, that you had to collaborate from strength. And this required the investment in programs. And I think in that sense, he always felt that the Wharton research and design team were worthy parts of that collaboration from strength. Charles Pringle, um, just a very quick one. Um, I worked for a short time with Rolls-Royce. Mm. And Kenneth Keith was yes. in the chairman. And I remember one occasion, Freddie was coming to see Kenneth. And Kenneth said, that quiet man, he doesn't say, it takes him hours to say anything, etc., etc. But he grew, after a couple of meetings, to have the greatest respect for Freddie. Yeah. He realized how deep Freddie's feelings were. Yeah. Yeah. May I also just add that I knew Freddie from the time when I was a junior squadron leader in the Royal Air Force. And he um, helped us greatly with Canberra Ares 4 which we did a lot of long-distance flights with, mm. and it was up to entirely to Freddie that we got a long-range Bombay tank 
into that aircraft in time to its long-range flights. Flights which have flown incidentally by Andrew Humphrey, who later became Chief of Defence Staff. I mean, there's, there, I mean there's, there's, there are, again, again there was replete with stories. But again, we didn't touch on this. On, on Freddie's experience and expertise as an export, <laughs> on exports, I mean, that, there are some interesting tales of, of, of flogging, um, flogging Jaguar in India. And I think he, 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 he but he, he, you're right. He, he also, he, I think he was, he developed a good rep, a good relationship with with the pilots and the, certainly the, the team that that, that Beaumont um, ran. Though it didn't stop having an argument. There's a, there's a, I, I, I unearthed a, a paper where where with the, where the test pilots Beaumont was complaining about Teddy's failure to take their their interests uh, um, on, on board. But I think actually he, that probably belied. Um, his deep understanding and how much he owed to the brave guys that got them. In those days, of course, it was a real bravery to get into a, 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 a supersonic fighter. And I think that, again, there's some, there's some nice stuff in his memoirs about the relationship with, with, the, with the operational people. Um, he's not always too complimentary about engine makers, but I, dare think, but I, think, that's, that, I think that goes with the airframe business. I nearly said that, but... Uh... <laughs> From my time, which was working at Vickers at Weybridge and then at RAE, where I saw quite a lot of the industry, um, I got the feeling that different companies have rather different cultures, and particularly the de Havilland and Hawkers and Avro culture was actually noticeably different from the Bristol, and I suspect English Electric, though I didn't know them so well. Did he notice this as he was putting BAE together? And yeah. um, did he have any particular techniques for bringing different cultures into a single organization? Um, yes, he did, because he, he was he clearly, he, I mean, for, for, for one thing, he, he felt that Hawker Siddeley, um, he brought a more centralized organization, a, a much tighter controlled organization to, to, to BAE. But I think what he, his technique again was to, well, yeah, well, let's, Get the guys who know the business. Let them work it out. That not to in, not to impose a pattern as long as it made sense and as long as it would reflect what throughout his life were very strict views about cost control. Um, there's some very interesting technical stuff in his memoirs about developing a matrix management system during the 1950s and, and a, a, a project management style. But it was a project management style that always reflected the, his own experience of being given responsibility at an early age. And I think that's what he took to the, the BAE merger, a recognition that there, were, there was talent there that simply had to be brought out. And I think that it, but just, in, in just, just as a sideline to this, I think you're right, Kit, one of the things that's still to be written, and I, 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 I'm... I'm looking at my own retirement project now, is, is, the, is the, the full story of the mergers in 1957 to 59 to 60, when everything, I think, was... You could almost say that everything that could go wrong with the merger process went wrong in some respects. And I think that, that really scarred Freddie, I think, because he genuinely felt that the Wharton team had got the right design. OK. Or at least he was, he was also willing enough to recognise that there were elements of the Vickers design that were important parts of the program so you know he would i think given the chance had he had he run the tsr2 program he would have brought the best guys from waybridge clearly into the program i think that i think there's enough evidence to suggest that he, he wouldn't have frozen them out simply because they came from that strange factory down south although he was he, actually afraid all the time he lived in the north you know he was a 
he was a southerner. There's an interesting footnote in the biography about leaving his children with a northern accent and the risks that this would bring to their careers. So he, you know, he, he was well aware of that, and I think that again, it's, it's, it's tribute to the, his breadth of imagination. And you know, and I, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in personal work because I've never done it by and large. I've only ever run a department of two at the height the most. But I think it was his ability again to, to bring thing, to bring people to bring people on. And I think that's that's the, that's that's what he, he became in a sense a cultural. Yes. By the time he gets to be, to be a because he'd, he'd seen it all, he'd seen the worst of it. And I think that was, in a sense, he was the right person the right, at the right time for, for the formation of BAE. Um, there was some, uh, some agonising, I think. I just, um, certainly there is, there is, uh, I must admit that there are num- a number of people who would say publish and be damned. Um, they are available for consultation, that's for sure. I mean, that's, they're, not, they're not sitting there as a, as, as a private piece of paper that I shall just quarry for the rest of my working life. Now, in that, no, that, that sense, they are still public documents. But I think there's a... I don't think a publisher would want them as they stand. Leaving aside, leaving aside some of the caustic things he does say about... Um, I think the one or two still alive. Um, um, they wouldn't make sense to... Um, not say a general readership. They wouldn't make sense maybe to, 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 the, to, the, to even you know, modern students of the aerospace industry. So they need a context... And I think, quite frankly, they, they don't. Other, other, there's other material that can also be to be brought into it. And I, I say that there are public documents these days. There are stuff, other papers that, uh, um, that Freddie left, which would make it, I think, a better presentation. I, I'm not saying I'm going to do it necessarily. If anybody's working on this and wants to take the whole for the whole lot, they can they can have it. Um, but I'm happy to carry on writing um, what will become a biography of, of, of Freddie Page. And I, I'm, I'm more convinced now that I've read, um, uh, I've, I've read Robert's um, superb volume, that he's obviously quoted a lot of George Edwards' private papers, and he had the great good fortune, of course, to interview him over, over several, 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 several years. So I, 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 I'm now convinced that's the way to go. But if there's a lobby, they can always take it on. I'll get back to, you know, th- other things. Uh, you said that he wasn't very uh, expressed rather negative views about Wedgie. Does he have any views that he expresses about Dennis Healy? <laughs> um, no, not directly. I, I, he, he, I think there's, I think he was still didn't he wasn't involved directly in in, in the cancellation exercise. That's very much George Edwards's thing views. His one little thing, an interesting issue. I, I, I must confess this was intriguing. Fre- Freddie, you know, Freddie does. Castigate the you know the, the, the way in which TSR two was broken up, all the rest of it, and the jigs dispensed. But I, you know, Robert thinks it was George Edwards that broke up the jigs rapidly, because he'd done the same on the V one thousand. He didn't want he didn't want the, the corpses of the corpses of cancelled programs lying around to destroy morale. So I think you know Freddie Freddie was prepared to believe that it was a you know, it was Dennis Healy's um, decision, but um, Robert thinks it was George's decision. I don't know whether that... I mean, that doesn't really answer your question, but it, 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 it's only late... It's only in the 70s and 80s that, that Freddie, in a sense, gets directly involved in the high politics of the industry. I don't know. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a lovely mythology around all of this. I, 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 don't, I honestly don't know, and I don't think anyone will truly know, but, because there's no sign... Of, apparently, because people, other people have ploughed through the, the public records, and there's no, there's no smoking gun go forth and break up these jigs. But... 
Yeah, I'm prepared to believe, uh, and it's consistent with, with George's behaviour over the V1000. Way back, before I went to Cambridge, I did six months at Way... Uh, before I went to Cambridge, I went, did six months at Weybridge, putting rivets into valiance mainly. And the fitter I was working with took me over to Wisley once. Mm. And at that point, the V1000 had been cancelled, but the fuselage was still sitting there in a corner of the shop. <laughs> Um, they pointed out all the things that were wrong with it because <laughs> uh, there were certainly people at Weybridge who breathed a sigh of relief when it was cancelled because it had had very much the second team designing it. Oh, Wisley, yes. Um, Fred, Freddie's not wasn't 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 too yes. happy with the with the way in which Wisley was making a bid for um, for testing the TSR two. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. No, it wasn't a good case. I think no one was. Everybody felt that putting the bloody thing together at Boscombe Down was an absurdity. But um, yeah, which might not have happened uh, in, in Freddie's view if, um, if 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 Wharton had been the design centre. May I now call on Harry Fraser Mitchell to propose a vote of thanks. Mr. President, thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I didn't know Freddie Page. Um, I knew of him, obviously. And I'd seen him several times, uh, somewhat in the distance and somewhat in awe, being very junior, of course, at the time when he was rather senior. I had much more to do with the other Freddie Page, although I daren't call him Freddie Page, Sir Frederick Hanley Page, he liked to be referred to like that. So I knew more about him. But I know a lot more about Freddie Page now, and I recognise in what you've said that uh, the two men actually had a bit in common in the way they approached life and their problems. Now, Freddie was, I think, an aerodynamicist. So since I was also what might be called an aerodynamicist, a junior one, uh, I feel very warm about that because I feel I was in the right trade, although I didn't get to the heights that he got to. Then, of course, there is a a thing called uh, uh, talent, and I don't think I had very much. He had rather a lot. it's interesting, we've heard, how he came from humble beginnings, as indeed did, did, did the other page. Uh, but it's clear that right from the beginning, he was an aviation man. And I think that probably is a characteristic of most people who got on to high level in the aircraft industry. They were aviation people. They knew what they wanted to do at an early age. Uh, and in Freddie Page's case, had the determination and the pluck and the talent to do it and get right to the very top. Uh, We heard how he achieved all his ambitions. What a marvellous way to look at your life. I've achieved all my ambitions. Wonderful thing to say. We've we've heard how he had very hard uh, taskmasters early on in his life. Uh, Sidney Cam, not not an easy man to get on with. Uh, Maybe that was a good apprenticeship for him. Uh, certainly, he then had Petter, a strange man, curious in many ways, a brilliant man, but strange. Again, a difficult man to get on with, and he coped. And I think this was another bit of his apprenticeship, if you if you like, uh, to allow him to deal with difficult people uh, like Mr. Sheffield must have been. Well, now, <clears throat> he started off, I think, on the Canberra, which was a, must have been a wonderful aeroplane to start off on. It was at the beginning of things. It was the first jet bomber. 
very impressive. I can remember as a mere lad uh, watching it climbing out of Farnborough at that sort of angle. Uh, you know, what a wonderful way of doing it. What a wonderful expression of your work to see that sort of thing early on in your career. And then the lightning. Right, really, at the leading edge of technology of the time. Very exciting to work on, I'm sure. And you had a man who was capable of doing it. This is the thing that came across to me right through your talk, sir. Here was a man who was a man for the job. He grew into the job, he grew with the job, and he was capable at every stage of that job of taking on the responsibility, increasing responsibility, uh, as time went on. Capable of taking it on, making a success of it. Putting up with all the frustrations, and there must have been many, but doing the job that was required, but doing it his way. He obviously had the determination and the steel frame inside him, which would say, this is what I know is right, this is the way it's going to be done. And with the personality that he un undoubtedly had, he got things done that way. And the aviation industry in this country owes him a huge debt of gratitude. Okay, people might say he was a military man. All right, uh, he probably was. But we heard uh, in the discussion that he was very interested in civil aviation also. And I think maybe had things been different, uh, he would have made a huge mark in that as well. So again and again, it seems to me uh, that his determination to succeed, his intellect for knowing the right thing to do at the right time comes across all the time, and, and sir, you brought this out very well. Keith, you said at the start that you were really using Freddie Page's words. Uh, I think, however, you're much too modest, because I believe you've given your observations of this remarkable man and his remarkable achievements with great clarity, with very interesting detail, and with perceptive comments. We're most grateful to you for that. Uh, we look forward to your book. Uh, are you taking orders yet? <laughs> I do thank you, sir, for a very, very interesting lecture, uh, and I would ask the audience to join me with thanking you also in the usual way. Thank you very much. <laughs>